0: Welcome back to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleagues John Easton and Adam Bellamar, and we are gathered here at EFB Worldwide Headquarters, bolstered by the cold-pressed nitro-infused coffee provided by Commonwealth Joe. Adam, what would you like to say about this nitro-infused coffee? Well, I'll tell you what, I've, I've
1: learned a lot of things since uh, I've come to Capitol Hill in Eastern Market, and one of them is that iced coffee, coffee that was brewed the traditional hot way and then cooled and put over ice, just doesn't do it for me anymore. I became aware at this wonderful shop we have across the street called Bullfrog Bagel that there is such a thing as cold brew, and... It is, it's just phenomenal, and it's really lifted my spirits all summer, and I started to look, how can we do something like that here at EFB? We found Commonwealth Joe, who provides all of the equipment, everything you need in your office to, to serve nitro cold brew coffee and you just pay for the coffee, and these guys are fantastic. We've suddenly become big fans of it, John.
0: Uh, John Easton, you are a coffee aficionado, being from the greater northwest of this country. I'm not a cold coffee person. I don't like cold soups. I like hot soups, I usually like hot coffee, but I will say I'm a convert. What what are your thoughts on this nitro-infused coffee from Commonwealth Joe?
2: The first thing that attracted me to it, John, was the kegerator that it that it is served out of. It literally looks like you have just walked into a a, a man cave in a basement and it has the whole that that the draft tap and everything. But below it is not it is not a keg of beer, it is a keg of coffee. It is cold. It is wonderful and and and, and moreover, it looks like after you pour it, it looks like a glass of Guinness.
1: It does, right? It's got this great head on it. Yes. And I, I'm, just I'm not really a beer drinker, but I suddenly I feel like more of a man drinking it.
0: You get a buzz, but it's not a buzz from alcohol; it's a buzz from caffeine infused nitro. And
1: well, I, they call it nitro brew, but it, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's phenomenal.
2: And we all, all three of us, just for the record, have a nitro cold pressed brew in front of us. <laughs> we do indeed. We're quite a sight.
0: Theory one: make or break time for the GOP majority. Here's my theory. Congressional Republicans must prove they can govern this fall. They have to keep the government open, extend the debt limit, renew the flood insurance law, reauthorize the FAA, and otherwise do the bare minimum to keep the wheels on track. If they are able to do all of these things before Christmas, they will keep their majorities. If not, they're going to be in big trouble from both the left and the right. John Easton, you've lived through a few of these campaign cycles in your time. What are you thinking
2: about what the Republicans have to do this fall? Well, the thing about campaign cycles is that you gotta have something to campaign on. And this is, for those who pay attention to the Beltway, to the House, the Senate, and the White House on a regular basis, this must feel like groundhog day because this seems to happen now every single fall exactly what John Fury just just described which is need to get this done need to get this done need to get this done it is the bare minimum i completely agree and i think those senior staff members on capitol hill would tell you the same thing that that's about all you're going to expect but the problem is is to go home in the in the campaign cycle that you're you're talking about to go home and say well we prevented the government from shutting down well, we prevented the United States government from defaulting. That's a problem. I think you've got to have something more, some, something we did tax reform. We got a victory there. We did infrastructure. And, and now because of Hurricane Harvey, which I know we're going to talk about, it's now we came to the rescue of the state of Texas and Louisiana. We did that. We got that done, and it was important. These are things that members of Congress are going to have to go back and talk about.
0: So, John, uh, you're saying that they can't just do the bare minimum. They have to go beyond the bare minimum, but the bare minimum is essential to get done first. They've got to go beyond that if they want to campaign on something. Uh, Adam Belmar, I think about this in the context of – I always think about it in the context of the economy. If the economy is going strong, then I think Republicans will be fine. But if the economy is weakening, it won't be fine. It's also the perceptions of the economy – Uh, and how people feel about things in their own personal lives. And I think there's also going to be a concern about Donald Trump, which we will get to later, uh, and how much they dislike or like him or or despise him, depending on what the polls tell you. What are your thoughts on on what the Republicans have to do this fall?
1: Well, I I believe that uh, the country had a very jarring experience through the last campaign, and it didn't give way to any sense of normalcy over the last six months. And so we're hypersensitive to what Washington is doing and not doing. And the healthcare debacle after seven years of calls for uh, repeal and replace and having nothing credible to put on the table and then pass has left, I think, Americans of every stripe just wondering what is it that they do in Washington. And so with these very pressing national problems that we have in Texas and now spreading into Louisiana, I think that Americans, as as John Easton said, They demand action, that we get quickly to what we can do to help put these people back on their feet, to do the things that the federal government was always intended to do. We built a great infrastructure in this country, and it is crumbling, and we have to be able to meet these priorities. I believe that the majorities in Congress, on the Senate and the House side, are in jeopardy, and I was not as convinced of this even a month ago. And in the last two weeks, John, we've seen upward revisions of GDP in the second quarter to 3%, contrast that with a lower-than-expected jobs number that just came out this morning, and the cacophony of press attacks and counterattacks by the president and against the president. We have, I think, a lot of people who are very worried about where we are going and are standing just here at home. If it's America first, let's get to it.
0: So, guys, I'm going to get to my second theory right now because I think both these theories are bleeding into one another. Theory two, build, build, build. Here's my theory. Before Harvey hit, tax reform was the most likely issue to get through Congress this year. But after the terrible devastation that hit Houston, I believe that rebuilding the Texas coast while also rebuilding America's aging infrastructure is not only better politics, it is now a higher priority. Uh, Adam, you worked uh, in the media during the Katrina years. In your estimation, does does Harvey rival Katrina in the terms of devastation and in the terms of the long-term costs? And also, thinking about this, I mean, I think about this in the context of not only uh, Katrina, but also 9-11, about how Congress really de- does need to come together to-, to show it can actually get stuff done, big stuff, because you got to help people.
1: Yeah, I was with ABC News uh, during 9-11, and I was covering the White House as the Washington Bureau Chief for Morning America when Katrina happened, and I see these as rivaling without a doubt. This is a uh, historic catastrophe that has befallen American people. It's certainly in Texas. It may now be spreading into Louisiana, some of the flooding in Tennessee and Kentucky. The media has focused rightly on this, and I, I, I see less of a comparison, even in the breathlessness. And... The self-aggrandizement that I see in the part of the media, and I, I mean to indict them. I, I'm not proud of what I've seen by the national media over the last couple of days. But I do believe that the American people are seeing this in a way that is clear, that this is a horrible, horrible catastrophe, that... I I do believe people are getting the uh, the breadth of the scale of, and I think it thankfully brings out the humanity and the charitable nature of American people to stand with each other.
0: And Adam, let me let me me throw to John real quick. But I will say, John Easton, that this is not just a Texas tragedy, and I say that because so much of what happens in that area impacts the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. All the petrochemicals all the energy costs that are going to come, I mean, people are going to see increases in their gas prices because of this tragedy, because all the refining that happens in Texas. You know, you've seen a lot of, of these types of tragedies when Congress, you worked in Congress, with all kinds of things like Hurricane Sandy and all things like this. But I do think that this has a special relevance because of its impact on the rest of, of the country.
2: Right. And, and to Adam's point, uh, just the, the scale of this and the media coverage of this, no, nobody can miss the, 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 the massive uh, devastation that, that is occurring. And, and I think that you know the federal government should be doing one thing and one thing really well, and that is taking care of people who need help. And, and this is just a, a, a very, very good example of that, of that need, and Congress can bicker over all sorts of issues. But when it comes to uh, communities like this that are uh, hit so hard, I think that, that coming together and, and just – this should be an easy one, really. It should be an easy way, and, and, and I think what's going to happen is they're going to need to act fairly quickly, in my opinion. I know that there's talk of this being attached to a, a funding extension at, toward the end of the month. But they need to get this going as quickly as possible because as, as we've seen with other disasters, the longer you wait, the more these these petty arguments start to take root and the more Congress looks ridiculous.
1: Does that make sense to you, John, that that they should politically make this a clean funding effort uh, to get the initial response for Harvey done just alone? Listen,
0: I think what's going to happen, I think John's right, they're going to do two tranches. They're going to do first an initial inf- infusion of cash for FEMA, um, and that money will get to, to, to the uh, folks in, in, in Houston and other places uh, as part of this the continuing resolution that will keep the government open. And then they will probably do a bigger supplemental uh, that for all the other disastrous costs. Some people are saying up to $120 billion. Well, that's what the governor... Of Texas is saying and it could be that much money because this is a this is a big this is a big cost and that will come at, towards the end of the year through this all though I think that it makes it much more difficult for Republicans especially if Republicans representing Texas uh, to you know filibuster against a package they, they see as bloated um, and so this makes it this will I think ironically give people on the Appropriations Committee, a license to put more more things in there because they know it's a it's a must pass piece of legislation. And then, it, it, you know, you, it's not just this big desperate thing that's happening in Houston. You also have what's happening in North Korea. Uh, and so, you know, not doing the debt limit and not doing, you know, all the things to keep the government open, you know, that that's even worse politics for Republicans. So I think that they've lost a lot of leverage that they might want to kind of slow things up.
1: I want to stray away from politics for a second, make a statement and see if, I can engage you two gentlemen on this topic. I believe that we have such an amazing, unique history with regard to broadcasters in America. Uh, We license the airwaves for the benefit of the public, and we have a great tradition of local broadcasting that's primarily on radio, but it's also on television. You have a very connected community of people who get their news, who get all of the things that benchmark life, in their communities over the airwaves. And I know we've transformed into a cable and internet-driven society, but what I have seen and what I've always believed is our greatest strength, one of our greatest strengths as a country, is that the local media down in Houston, the radio stations, the television stations, who just sought to shine a light wherever there was need, wherever the people were in danger. And I think there are countless examples of people who were helping to affect rescues or to interconnect the community, the responders, the government with people who, who needed help. And it was so uplifting to see. And I just want to say that in stark contrast, I have watched broadcasters like ABC News, who I used to work for, and I was so sad to see what I saw last night. Breathless, self-aggrandizing, overly dramatic, tone and covering this and hey we found a boat we went out and rescued someone you know to me it looks like you guys went out to go create a story that you could cover and show that you were there for a reason and that you could find your own drama Uh, i'm disappointed in national broadcasters i think i've seen a couple of good things but what i've really seen are just amazing practitioners of broadcasting and journalism at the local level that makes me feel proud to be an american
2: yeah, I mean, Adam, that's such a good point. And, and and those of us who work with the media, we 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 talk about the media. This is really a fascinating story. And 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 through all the campaigns I have done, I've, I've become a real fan of of local media. I mean, there's nothing like when you're when you're doing a campaign in a state or in a say in a congressional district, and you stop by the local radio station, or you stop by the weekly newspaper. These folks know the most about their own community, and they know they've got the pulse. And so, when something like this happens, uh, they're the ones who can report on it so accurately and and so in such a compelling way. I'll tell you what: if I could, if I could get a feed from the Houston local Houston TV station here in this office I would do that that over MSNBC CNN in a heartbeat.
0: Well, you you make a really important point and you contrast these uh the local lifelines that come with the local broadcasters and mm-hmm. we Adam I we've talked about this where you you get a sense about what's really happening on the ground with especially local radio. And how yeah, when the lights
1: go off, the and radios I, go on people can turn to radio to know
0: and, and they feel the sense of comfort and they feel like they've the sense of connection and a, a sense of support and one of the things we know about the broadcasting industry uh, not cable so much but the broadcasting industry is they, they get some of the spectrum because of public safety for yep. precisely one of these things and what we're finding through this crisis is that connection, now we know why we give all that spectrum to broadcasters because we need it, and we need it for the public safety. Uh, and I, I contrast the the, the 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 work of the local broadcasters who know their communities, and then that CNN reporter who you know interviewed some poor woman who had just got her kids, uh, you know, through a very tough time. They were the kids were shivering; they didn't have anything to eat. They, they were you know in really in, in really duress, and this woman just went off on this on the CNN reporter who was trying to exploit her. And, you know, tell me your story. Well, the lo- local broadcasters, they all know these people, and they're not trying to exploit they're trying to They're trying to help.
1: And I think you of that. What do you need? Not tell me your tale of woe. Right. I, I, yeah, I would say
2: I would put local broadcasters really a, as part of the same team as first responders. Exactly
1: right. I completely agree with that. Yeah.
2: Theory three, Trump fatigue. Here's my theory.
0: People are getting tired of talking about Donald Trump. They're tired of the media covering him. They're tired of his tweets. They're tired of the palace intrigue. They're tired of all the Trump bashing. And they're just plain tired of being tired. Adam Belmar, you mentioned to me that you were tired about talking about the president. And so immediately I decided that we should talk about that. Adam, explain in a brief couple of words your feelings about being tired about talking about the president as we talk about the president? Well,
1: first of all, I I want to be very clear. I am a Republican and I am a proud Republican. But I have to say I'm very disappointed with what I've seen coming out of the White House from this president and a lot of the problems that he has created for himself and, by extension, for the nation. And I don't want to continue to have to feel as though I need to defend the president. I don't want to continue to talk about the drip, drip, drip every day of things that are suspicious that either he's done or some of the comments that he's made. And every day I feel put upon as I look out at the things that I hope for in this new administration and in this Congress. And it is beating me down. And there's no amount of nitro coffee that's going to change that.
0: Uh, John Easton, are you similarly tired of the wall-to-wall coverage of our president, either pro or con, although I must say I think it's mostly con?
2: I am tired of it. I think that he really wants to drive every single day. He wants to drive the discussion. He wants to be in the middle of the discussion. Sometimes it's just better for a president of the United States not to be in the middle of a discussion, especially if it's not a very good discussion. But he can't help himself. Uh, and that gets tiring, but but it's also driving a lot of people into a very dark place, which I am not uh, I'm not very proud of. Which is that discussions are starting to become moral judgments of each other. Uh, and you know, do you uh, are you uh, oh you you support Trump on on that? Maybe it's just an issue, and then it becomes you're being judged to your moral character. And I think that is is really a – we're dissolving discourse to a point where it's just no longer fun.
0: It's awfully hard to disagree without being disagreeable if you think the person that you're disagreeing with is a moral reprobate. And that is the judgment of a lot of folks on both sides of the debate. But actually –
2: more on the liberal side. That's right. And I think that – and to finish my point on that, I think Donald Trump is is taking us there instead. And I'm not saying he's responsible for it because I think we've been heading there over the last perhaps decade, at least slowly but surely. But he's accelerating it.
1: Yeah. And, and uh, I want today, tomorrow, a week from now, I want the president to be successful. Mr. President, I'm rooting for you and I'm rooting for our country and I happen to agree with so much of your agenda. But on a personal level, my tiredness is also exacerbated by things like what I read in the paper this week about a very good friend of mine, a fellow named George Chichikos, who has been one of Donald Trump's core four aides since he started his campaign, who went to the White House as the Director of Presidential Advance, and was done so poorly by the president, and uh, told that he'll never work another presidential event uh, after the rally in Phoenix, Arizona, last week. I don't think any of us really know the truth about all the things that go on because people are very circumspect about talking about. But when it spills out into the press, and you see people who you know personally, who you know to be such quality individuals who are showing leadership and making real sacrifice, being away from their family, their children, and trying to do the best they can to help support the President of the United States. And they all end up in the same situation. And it's uh, it's very disheartening.
0: Well, listen, I think that uh, – I, and I understand your position, and, and, I, and I appreciate it um, – I'm still kind of amused by this president. I think he's very amusing on many different levels. Um, I also think that this is a new guy coming in who uh, is not—he's way outside the, the political norms. I think he is a threat to the system of both parties. I think the media has treated him very, very poorly. Uh, I also think that he's a, uh, you know, egomaniac, uh, and I can—I can—I can have both those thoughts at the same time. I think he's someone who kind of, you know, wants everything to be about him. You know, why does he have to go and try to claim credit for a event in Houston that is, you know, still evolving. And I also to your point, Adam, he's got to be more loyal to his staff. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the pre- the president shouldn't have been in Phoenix to to begin with. He also shouldn't have pardoned Joe Arpaio right as Harvey was hitting you know, I mean, maybe he's trying to hide hide the, the the nut there, but I don't think that that was good form. I also don't think that how he pardoned Joe Arpaio in the middle, you know, without a full review of the Justice Department was was smart. I think this president is, uh, in many ways, a refreshing change of the status quo, but in many ways, you know, an egomaniac who makes consistently makes mistakes. And I I appreciate what you're saying. I don't really like to talk about Trump outside of, of, of these of these settings. You know, I, I think that um, I would l- rather talk about other things like, you know, Little League baseball or whatever, or the Washington Nationals or, you know, uh, Commonwealth Joe's Nitro, you know,
1: or back to school. I mean, let's face it families uh, around the country, certainly our families here at EFB Advocacy, we've all got children who are school age kids, and they're back to school. And getting ready for that in August and seeing them off to school this past week has been a great joy for all of us. And this is something that every American family both wants to have, some are enjoying. And even as we have that mentioned here on this podcast, one wonders with what's being reported today if after this this podcast, this very, theory, theory podcast is f- produced and released that we might f- end up with
0: a Friday night surprise on DACA. Right. And, and that's that's for another podcast. Uh, I will say that, you know, I want this president to su- succeed not because I love this president, but because I love this country and I want his success to be the success of all the American people. And I do think his agenda you know, is by and large the right agenda. I I think he's wrong in immigration. I've said that many times. I think immigrants are really an important part of this country. They're an important part of the fabric of this country. And uh, and I do think that the president ultimately will want to get to immigration reform, which I think whatever decision he makes on DACA is going to require a legislative solution. Um, And so we can get to that later. Um, John, do you have any other thoughts before we we move on to the, the final goodbye?
2: No, I just, I think that what, you know, you look at, at all these kids going back to school and, and, it, and it reminds you what what's really important uh, to families in this country, not just families, but really everybody. And I think that that deep down, even though, you know, folks may, you know, vigorously uh, disagree on, on particular issues, they do want to be inspired and they want to be led. And I think there's been a dearth of inspiration, uh, not just, and I'm not just talking about the last eight months, I'm talking really about the last... Oh, uh, I guess eight years. and because while President Obama had his strengths, that really wasn't one of them. He was well spoken, but he wasn't particularly inspiring. Uh, he more lectured. I think uh, many people would agree with that. And so I think each new president, I think Americans are looking for somebody who can you know bring us together to a point because I don't think you can just say, "Oh, we just all need to be brought together because a lot of people don't want to be brought together, but bring us together, but inspire us. You know, lead us to our better angels, and so far, President Trump hasn't shown an ability to do that. I think that's that that could be a real problem for him as the uh, as time goes on.
0: I will say that when President Obama was initially elected, that first election, there were a lot of people who were inspired, but there was the follow through and the actual governing where I thought the president didn't quite meet meet the mark. And I think you're right, John when the inspiration almost immediately turned to lecturing and this kind of sense of moral superiority. And, you know, I think that when everyone gets in their own little moral sandboxes, they can all kind of, you know, throw sand at each other. And I think that that's one of the problems we have, is people have to learn, learn to live and let live, but they also have to learn to understand one another. And they do need inspiration from their, from their leaders, and, and then leaders need to be more inspiring. And that's not just about presidents. That's also about members of Congress. And part of that is also, you know, I'm going to make you a promise that I know I can keep, and I'm going to keep that promise. And I think that a lot of leaders on both sides of the aisle have failed on that. And finally, talking about children and the fall, I want to give a shout-out to all the teachers out there who have been preparing all summer for the arrival of the kids coming back to school. I want to give a special shout-out to St. Peter's School, where my little daughter finally is going, and uh, also the school where um, the Easton girls go uh, and is one of probably the finest uh, Catholic schools in the Archdiocese. I, we had someone there this morning tell us that. Uh, Adam, your kids are, one, going to middle school. Yeah, we've got one
1: now that uh, is remaining at Glasgow Middle School out in Fairfax, and our oldest son is just just this week started as a freshman at Jeb Stewart High School in uh, Virginia. It's a very exciting time for us. And as we're talking about the beginning of school, I'll also mention that as we finish this podcast, we have a young man who's been helping out around here at EFB by the name of Trayvon Harrington. He is beginning uh, his senior year at Dunbar High School. And tonight, uh, they have their first football game of the season. I'm going to head over there and try and uh, give some support and uh, show some EFB color. I'm proud of all the students, uh, both EFB and in our extended family, for what they're doing and getting ready to get back to school.
0: John, you said anything you want to say about uh, going back to school, or you might want to talk about college football because I know that you're a college football fan. Uh, Notre Dame plays next uh, this this weekend. You're
2: you're uh, a big fan of the Oregon Ducks. How are they looking this year? I think uh, big question mark. I'm just glad that they're not uh, some sort of preseason early favorite that uh, they have to live up to. But it's going to be a wait and see. I think they're going to surprise some people. Big game is not this weekend, but next weekend against uh, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. But they are playing at Autzen Stadium in, at the University of Oregon. So I'm 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 encouraged.
0: A special shout out to Tom Kozny, who is a big university of nebraska fan with that i will just say uh, a big fall coming up for efb and for washington and for students everywhere thank you for listening to our podcast the fury theory podcast brought to you by efb advocacy efb means
1: excellent for business yes